Our scripture this morning is Romans 3, verses 19 and 20, and I'm going to be reading from the message. This makes it clear, doesn't it, that whatever is written in these scriptures is not what God says about others, but to us to whom these scriptures were addressed in the first place. And it's clear enough, isn't it, that we're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everybody else. Our involvement with God's revelation doesn't put us right with God. What it does is force us to face our complicity in everyone else's sin. Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I received a letter this week from one of our sisters in Christ. Um, She asked me to appear with her in court. She doesn't obviously need my legal prowess because I don't have any. But she does need my loving presence. And she'd like for me to just be there to stand with her while she goes through this event. How how many people here have actually been in a courtroom before, okay? Raise your hands. Okay, wow. Whoa. Why? (laughs) It's because as we just sang, we're sinners, that's why. (laughs) And we make mistakes. Uh, But sometimes you go to court because you did make a mistake, because you actually have a case against someone who's made a mistake or or you believe has wronged you. And so there is a system that's been set up, our court system, that that really is kind of a a pan scale. That's a picture of that. And we believe the simple and its basic works like this. You bring what you believe happened in an event, and and I'll bring what I believe happened in an event, and we'll put that in in the scale. And we believe that truth outweighs untruth. We believe that justice will outweigh injustice. Now, I know that there are some um, conniving lawyers. I know there's some corrupt justices. But still, talk to anyone across the globe. We have one of the best options for trying to decide what happened when there's been a disagreement or a wrong in the world. Our court system, and its scale system, its justice system, is as good as it possibly gets around the globe. Now, regardless of how you feel about that, still, when you walk into a courtroom, it's it's a little bit unnerving. Because there's always the idea, I think, for every one of us who's ever been there, and I've been in a few, that what if my perception of the truth isn't as strong as I think it is? What if how I saw this particular event isn't really how someone else on the outside of the event is going to see it, and so we're a little bit fearful about it? And I think we take that fear all the way with us, even to death. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, but somebody's loved on you or invited you to come and be a part of of this church thing, maybe you've heard something about this. Matter of fact, I'm almost positive you have. Even if you didn't know it came from the Bible, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. You may have thought it was just kind of one of those old sayings. But the scripture says people are destined to die at once and after that face judgment. Now that's pretty typical for most of us. All of us are going to die unless Jesus comes and takes us home. All of us are going to die. But we also tend to believe that there's going to be a judgment. The scripture says there's going to be a judgment of some sorts. And so there's this courtroom philosophy we've been brought up with. That there's going to be this judge and we're going to come into the courtroom and and we're going to argue our case. And if the the good outweighs the bad, we're going to get to go to heaven. And if the bad outweighs the good, then we get to go to that other place, to hell. 
It's so much a part of our culture, we even make up jokes about it, don't we? <laughs> like the one I told a couple of Sunday nights ago to our uh, small group that meets here at the church building. Three guys who died, they went to the pearly gates, and Peter came and asked them a question, what makes you think that you're able to get into heaven? The first man said, well, I was a doctor. I worked especially among the third world's poor and handicapped, and, and I lived on a very simple income compared to other people in my profession. I've helped a lot of people get medical care who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. And Peter said, phew, wow. Come on in, brother. Right into heaven. Then there was a second man who was a lawyer, and he said, I worked with the oppressed and the disenfranchised, and I defended the innocent people who couldn't afford a good lawyer and won most of those cases. Peter said, wow. Come on in. Then there was a third guy. Peter said, what makes you think that you should come into heaven? He said, well, I was a managed care health professional. I know, like you, he said, what? What do they do? He said, well, I help keep health costs low in our country. Well, the angel said, you could enter into heaven too. However, you can only stay three days. Now, only those who are over 40 get that, all right? I understand. So I wasn't prepared for just knock-down laughter here. When people are asked why they hope they can get into heaven, they often reply by referring to all the good they've accomplished. Because popular theology says good people deserve to go to heaven. That seems just so fair. It seems so just. It seems so... American. Sophia Loren was asked, she was a once famous actress in our country, do you think you ought to go to heaven? She said, well, I'm not a practicing religious person, but I pray and I read the Bible, and I'm a nice person. I think I should go to heaven. Otherwise, I just don't think it would be nice. I haven't done anything wrong, really. No, I should go straight, straight to heaven, she said. Then the well-known boxer Muhammad Ali said in Reader's Digest, one day we're going to die and God is going to judge us, our good deeds and our bad deeds. And if the bad deeds outweigh the good, then we go to hell. But if the good deeds outweigh the bad, then we get to go to heaven. Now, I know that's popular thinking. And as we're about to see in a few moments, that's also not new thinking. But here's the question that we need to entertain today, and it's this. Is it Jesus thinking? Is it Jesus thinking? This morning we're going to look in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at a guy who approaches Jesus and probably deserved to go to heaven as much as any human being that ever approached Jesus. If being good is good enough. Let's read the text. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? There's the question. Well, why do you call me good? Because nobody is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Well, teacher, he declared all those I've kept since I was just a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
Don't run by that too quickly. Jesus looked at him. And he loved him. He said, one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Well, at this, the man's face fell. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, it is so hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, it is hard to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples at that were even more amazed and said, well, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man... This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Church, Father, we love you. And this church lifts up its hearts and its voices to you just like we we believe that St. Paul's Methodist is. You know who your followers are in both groups. But we're asking all of your strength and energy and effort in us be poured into our strength and effort and energy to be one. We don't do that very well, God. And we're asking your help with it. We're also asking your help specifically this morning. God, we want to go to heaven. We do. And there's a lot of opinions out there about who gets to go. So we're asking you, would you please help us leave here with at least your understanding of how we get there. Thank you so very much for the truth. And we're praying this morning that it does set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said. Jesus starts with two... All right, come on now. Behave. Jesus starts with two statements in that little section that we read. That raises eyebrows for them and may even raise eyebrows for some of you. The first one, nobody's good except God. The second, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now what does he mean by all that? I think at its simplest, Jesus is saying being good isn't good enough. I don't know anybody in any religious system that claims that you have to be perfect to get into heaven. No matter who's defining the religious system. As a matter of fact, I doubt if anybody in this room would say, yeah, I'm perfect. None of us are that arrogant. But it seems fair to say that all of us in here, while we we know we don't have to be perfect, we believe God grades on the curve. It seems to most men that God will allow us into heaven because the good outweighs the bad that's in our lives. Now, I was hoping to illustrate this today by actually having somewhere here, either on the table. Well, no, we saw Ricky down there. I wouldn't put it down there with Ricky doing stuff. Um, I'd keep it up here somewhere. But I'd like to have a set of pan scales, okay? 
But I couldn't get my hands on them. I called Jack Pratt. I called some lawyers and some judges. Nobody had a set of pan scales. So today, I'm going to be the pan scale, all right? Now, I know already the illustration shot because you're about to say you're out of balance, sportsman. There's no way you could be an effective pan scale. But all right, go with the illustration. I'm going to start with these dark rocks in here, all right? And they're going to represent the sinful things we've done. Not just me, but the sinful things we've done. Like um, um, when you were playing golf, your buddy asked you what you have, and you said you had a five when you had a seven. Um, oh, back when you were third grade, you cheated on a test. Um, did a little speeding. 65 and a 75. Didn't get caught. Oh, here's one. <laughs> then you got a car. <laughs> and this one's... Then you started dating. Mm. And um, this one is you got married. I have some great things about marriage, but wow, there's been some difficult things that have come out of you as a marriage partner. Oh, forgot this one. <laughs> you went to college. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of things that went on at college we don't want to talk about. All right, but this is the pan scale that holds the bad things, okay? Now, there is another side, thank you, God, because there's not just bad things that we've done in our lives. Uh, there's also the good. Uh, there's the, oh, here's one. Nice to the kid at school who nobody liked. That's a good one. Um, here's the... Um, Read my Bible. Here is um, hmm. shared my Snickers with my brother. Now that's good. <laughs> uh, here is kept curfew when my parents asked me to. Here is volunteered at the nursery three quarters in a row. Here is was a virgin when I got married. And I think for most of us in here, honestly, if you were the pan scale up here and you were holding these, which I didn't practice this near enough. This is really heavy. This good side over here. I think most of us would say that the good outweighs the bad. Now, for me, if I was doing my pan scale, I would say I think the good outweighs the bad in my life. I mean, I am a preacher, okay? Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. But if we're just doing the scale analysis there, if that's the scale system that, that we think gets us into heaven, I think I pass. And I don't think I'm too different than most of you here in this room. Because I think, if not 100% of you, 99% would say, yeah, I've got some bad things in my life, but you know what? I really think there's a lot more good in me. And if it's going to go on that scale, the, the, the scale system here, we'll call it that, then, then yeah. If I, had, if I went to see God today, stood in the courtroom, I, I think I would, I would deserve in. The problem is every culture measures morality different. The uh, Boy Scouts measure the morality in the Scouts different than gangs, a motorcycle gang may. Um, the uh, Women's Quilting Club may measure their morality different than the Elks Lodge, okay? 
the, um, the Christians may measure their morality different than the fill in the blank. Whatever religious group that you think would be a different one and a drastically different type of morality. Well, in Jesus' day, one way you measured morality was by your wealth. And the thinking was that if you had money, then you were certainly blessed by God. He had to really like you. Because God is blessing a person. Most of the, uh, the people in Jesus' day thought, well, they must be good. I know the disciples did. And so when this young man stands before Jesus Christ and they find out he's commandment-keeping, they find out that he is a respected man, they find out that he is a wealthy man, in most churches this guy makes deacon in six months. Elder in two. Because when it comes to the the scale system, uh, this guy measures up. And big time. That's why the disciples are so shocked when Jesus says, you can get a camel through the eye of a needle easier than you can get one of these guys, a man like him, into heaven. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Now, I don't know that that shocks you as much as it shocked them with, with their, their culture and, and some of the idioms of their day. So let me rephrase this for your, this generation to see if maybe, just maybe, we can get the same effect. Maybe for you, morality is measured by amount of social service done, the kindness of people's hearts. And if, if that's true, if that's how you measure really good people, who in the world can you think of that, that I mean, if you're going to put up in the top three good people because of how they served humanity, who would you put up there? Don't shout out the names, just think them. But probably in that top three somewhere, how many of you would have put Mother Teresa? I mean, someone who just really has served. I know the Catholic thing kind of throws some of us off, all right? But here's a lady who really gave her, I mean, who in the world would go to Calcutta and give her life to serving leprous people, people nobody wanted to touch and be around? And so, let me put it in this perspective. It would be as hard for Mother Teresa to get into heaven, Jesus would say. It would be like you going down to the red box return slot and trying to shove an 18-wheeler in it. Okay? Are you with me now? I the needle thing, camel didn't work too much, red box slot, tiny. Hard enough to get those things back in there, right? But take an 18-wheeler and try to push it through. Maybe social service isn't how you would measure, measure morality. Maybe it's social justice. Who are those people who have been the voice for people who didn't have a voice? Who have tried to right the wrongs in our world, maybe sometimes through the court system, sometimes through, through teaching Does does the name Martin Luther King come to mind? Maybe Nelson Mandela? does to me. Then Jesus would have said, okay, let me tell you how hard it is for Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King to get into heaven. You take that same 18-wheeler and you try to get it into that little slot at the bank where you have to slide in your light deposit. That's how hard it would be to get Martin Luther King into heaven. One more. Maybe for you, it's moral standing. Maybe for you, it would be, okay, uh, someone who, who not just does good, but shows others how to be good. Someone who preaches and teaches and travels the country and has brought more people to Christ than any other person that has written or spoken. Billy Graham comes to my mind. Jesus would have said, Billy Graham, 
it would be as hard to get Billy Graham into heaven as it would be for you to get a battleship into your mailbox. That's how hard it is for a human being to get into heaven. Wow. Then who in the world could go? Ah, now you're where the disciples were. Really? Jesus, who in the world could be saved and who gets to go in? The first message Jesus wants to convey about the morality of God is that it is very different than any system of this world. Please hear that. Why is the scales approach up here on the screen such a big one in our country? (laughs) Because we believe some way, somehow, listen to me, God's obligated by the good that I do. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Doing good in the neighborhood's tough. Well, I want you to know this. God is obligated to recognize your good deeds. And here it is. You know what he says your good deeds are like in his system? And this is his word, not mine. They're like filthy rags. Now, if you haven't read this in the Bible lately, I just want to remind you, the good things you've been doing this week, you know what they're like? They're like filthy rags compared to God. Now, I'm not going to say my, my righteousness is filthy. No way. I mean, compared to a drug dealer who sells drugs to kids, compared to a serial killer who's killed like 30 people, compared to a, a pedophile who takes advantage of small girls and boys because they're children, there's no way my righteousness is like filthy rags compared to that. As a matter of fact, I know some of you in this room, and there's no way my righteousness is like filthy rags compared to yours on my scale system. But here's the deal. In God's system, I don't get to define the morality rules. I don't get to do that. I don't get to determine what's good and what's bad and and its ugliness or its beauty. He does. Who says so? Here's what we believe in the church. If you're a Christian, we believe this. There's this guy who came who claimed to be God, and he called his own death, and he called his own resurrection. Here's the deal. And he pulled it off. And that guy said, there is nobody good but God. That's who says so. In other words, the only way to get into heaven by God's scale approach is for you, listen to me clearly, to be perfect. To be holy, holy, holy. That's the only way you get into heaven, at least according to this book, according to these scriptures. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 5, Paul's going to say this, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because, what's the last two lines? Read it with me. I couldn't hear you. Yes, all sinned. Everybody. Everybody sinned because they were birthed as a human being into this world, the scripture says, into Adam's seed, and that propensity to do evil and to be prideful and arrogant and selfish was in us. And all sin. Nobody was left out. Nobody. Nobody is good but God. 
That's all. At least that's what the Bible says. Something happened in New York City back in 2002. It happened at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Seems a guy um, put together this statue of Adam, six foot three statue, made of pure marble, was absolutely priceless. But somewhere, somehow, during the middle of the night, that thing fell over and just crashed. Absolutely broke into hundreds of pieces. That's the top part of Adam. I could not show the whole statue. This is a rated G audience, okay? It shattered. At first they thought it had to be vandalism. But the curators did all of the due diligence they could to try to find out what in the world had caused this and realized, here's what was a quote from Mr. Holzer, the chief curator. We are reasonably certain that this statue collapsed inexplicably on its own. Inexplicably on its own. Hmm. He said, we have ruled out vandalism quickly, and the statue, we believe, fell on its own weight. Interesting. It was all under an article that I found in Time magazine entitled, Adam Has Fallen Again. And I think it's a powerful picture of the problem that every single one of us in here who are part of Adam's seed have experienced. No one, no one is good. Not even one, Paul says. And the problem is, I, I'm just around my, uh, my dark stuff here on this side, so much so that I'm used to it. And, you know, I'm around you enough that I, I'm kind of used to yours too. And, but you know what I'm not? I'm not around holy, holy, holy. And so we kind of get used to each other's dark side here. We get used to each other's sin, and we think that's okay. And the Scripture is trying to say to the church, not to the world, it's not okay. What's in that box isn't okay. It doesn't just break my rules, it breaks my heart. Because it breaks people when you choose unrighteousness, when you choose not to trust, when you choose to live a life that's ingracious to the things that I've blessed you with. It kills me. And it kills other people. I want to say that pile there is not a big deal. But God, in His economy, in His morality, in His system, here's what He says. It's like that. Now, I asked the elders if I could bring that in here. They said no. They say no to me all the time. My sin's like this. It's not like this. You think your sin's like this. It's not. It's like that. When you commit the first one. Now, there's a stunner. Who would have thought that? Paul says this, when you commit one sin, it's as if you're guilty. No, it is like you're guilty of all of that, all of the law. Now again, you don't have to take my word for this, but if you're thinking about maybe becoming a Christian, thinking about maybe going to heaven, the God who made that heaven, the God who revealed this word, and the God who brought His Son down here and He put on skin, and He called His own death, and He called His own resurrection... And it happened. Says that when you sin, it's no little deal. That's why what it took to save you was no little deal. Paul's going to say, 
in Romans 3 and verse 22. There's no difference. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if you think you're a pretty good person, those are very offensive words, the first four words there. If you think you're a pretty good person, I'm going to say it again, those words are pretty offensive. What do you mean there's no difference? Well, the Bible is not going to say that all men sin the same amount. The Bible is not going to say that some sins are not as devastating as other sins are. But the Bible is going to say that no man is good when it comes to good on God's terms. And you will have to come to God on His terms. When I was with Oak Hills, I had the opportunity to be um, at an event where over 250 people were baptized in the river. It's an amazing day. I've been in churches, most of the churches that I've spoken in haven't been 250. To see 250 become a part of the church in an afternoon was amazing. And that was the biggest thrill of my being able to be there. But also kind of below that was getting to baptize in the same river as David Robinson. Any Spurs fans in here? Give it up, baby. Seven foot one David Robertson baptizing people into Christ just like sportsmen did. It was incredible. And you know what? If David Robertson was here, seven feet one with five feet eleven now, I used to be six feet tall, but five feet eleven now at 55, you'd see a difference. And I don't mean just because of black and white. I mean seven foot one is he's up there. But you know what happens when you get in a helicopter and fly just a thousand feet above that? And you're looking down on those two guys. They don't look much different. Different perspective. From where God sits in his holy throne when he looks down on fallen sons of Adam. Here's what he says. When it comes to sin. And Sandra. And Scott. And Jimmy. And Gail. And Tom. Mandy. John. Jeremiah. Noah. Lisa. No difference. No difference. Then who in the world can be saved? Well, Chris Seidman will tell you. A couple of years back, he was at Abilene Christian. He was going through his oral exams. He was about to receive his master's degree, at least he hoped. Greg has a master's degree. As a matter of fact, Greg has a doctorate. So he's been through this before. And if you know what that's like then you've experienced professors who are allowed to ask you any question they want to on that final oral exam. Both questions from the stuff that you've studied in your, in your graduate degree, but also literally questions from anywhere. Well, as Chris navigated the questions fairly well, he tell you, one professor didn't say anything until the very, very end. And just before the last five minutes, he said, um, Chris, what's necessary for salvation? Wow, what a good question. What's necessary for a person to be able to get into heaven to the presence of God? Now, the problem was when you receive a graduate education, sometimes you try to give an answer when you're in the presence of learned men that's really, you know, educational. And he did. So for the next five minutes... He went on to weave together passages from the Bible that talked about baptism and, and confession and repentance and worked out this complicated, convoluted theological answer that he delivered and the professor started to shake his head no and he knew he was in trouble. 
He said, Chris, are you telling me that you're about to graduate with a master's degree in theology and you can't answer the question, what's necessary for salvation? Chris, it's one word. God. God. Salvation belongs to our God. It is a huge, impossible thing for man to save himself in any form or fashion. (laughs) Jesus said with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, Paul's going to weave these wonderful words together. He says, when we were born, we had this evil nature about us and we were under God's anger like everybody else. But God's so rich in mercy that he loved us so much so that while we were dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And only by God's special favor have you been saved. (laughs) Speaking of the dead, I had a chance to attend Willis Henderson's funeral yesterday with several of you. Interesting thing happened while we were there. There were some people so physically handicapped they couldn't get out of their car to come to the service right there by the curb. That's how incapacitated they were yesterday. Not dead, just incapacitated enough they couldn't get out of the car to hear the words, the great words that Greg had to share. And there was this person in the box, even more incapable (laughs) than even the person who was handicapped enough they couldn't get out of the car to come listen to Greg share thoughts at that funeral. Because he was, one word, dead. And that's what God says you were without him in your life. You were dead. How much can a dead person do? No, you need some major assistance from the outside if anything good's going to happen to a dead person. Am I right? You tracking with me? Dead. Nothing you could do. Impossible. But God... God couldn't sit still for that. He couldn't. Romans 3 started out with these words a few moments ago. There's no difference among us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, but it didn't stop there. It goes on. And all are justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by what? Faith. Faith. I'm afraid some of us are still under the impression that grace is like a bank loan. You show up and you need some money, and so you show the, the bank vice president your assets. You show him how much value you have, how much worth you have, and after you've proved you really don't need his help, he gives you some more money. And I think some of us think, that's how I'm going to purchase my heavenly home. I'm going to show God all of my assets. I'm going to show them to Him and try to establish how much I deserve to get in. And in His wisdom, He's got to let me in, right? Even though I really don't need His help much. A little. Isn't that how you feel most days? I mean, come on. You got the scale working. I think. Yeah, I'm almost soft. The good far outweighs the bad. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Only Christ, 
Only Christ saves me. Only Christ saves me. I wish I could say it for ten more times without wearing you out. Only Christ saves me. Because I'm not good enough. We are not saved by being good enough, but by believing that He was good enough and by putting our trust in that goodness. And when we do, the most incredible exchange in the world happens. You know the scripture. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. God made him to be sent on a cross like this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A trade takes place there. Because he became sin who didn't know it. I can become righteousness that I could have never known because I was dead in it. In the novel The Lord of the Rings, there's this powerful scene where the hobbit named Pippin is in a city that's under siege by an evil king who comes into the gates. But then off in the distance, Pippin hears some riders. The riders of Rohan. And the king of Rohan is leading his kingdom to come and save the city. But on that day, the king of Rohan is going to die. The city is going to be saved. And the book goes on to say that for the rest of his life... Whenever Pippin heard the distance horns that he heard on that day, he began to cry. Because it reminded him of the king that died. So he could live. I love the distant horns that my God plays for us. That he invites us to be a part of. I love what we did a few moments ago. Did you hear the distant horn a while ago when we shared the bread and we shared the wine and we remembered? I didn't do this. You did. I remember. I love this distant horn here that whenever someone says, I, I want in on this, you, that trade you talked about, I want in. My, my sin, my, my ugly, my dead, traded for righteousness, you bet, yes, if you believe that that was God. If you believe that he died on that cross for your sins and that he raised him from the dead after three days, if you believe that, you're in. And you know what we'll do? We'll take you right over here. And, and you're so in, we need to put you to death. We need to make, take you to the only funeral that's ever going to matter for anybody. And we take them down there, and we raise them up, and the rush of the water comes off of them, and they go, <gasps> and we welcome them into a brand new life. I love that distant horn. We'd never want to lose that distant horn in our fellowship. Because there was a king who gave his life so that this city right here could be saved. The system's not good enough. Can I just remind you of that church as we close right here? The system's not good enough. No. The system's probably okay. It's you that's not good enough. And so it can never make the system right. God is going to take, at least he's going to invite you to, God is going to take your scale from you, if you will today, and give you one of these. One of these. He wants this cross to be your cross both for the blessing that it gives. But listen to me. If you want in, he's going to say, before you say yes, please know, this has to mean so much to you that you would get on one for the people out there who are believing this lie. That if they will just be good enough, they're in. They're in. He says, I want you to come to the cross and I want you to dump even your good stuff here. And I want you to come to the cross and I want you to dump even the bad stuff here. Because you know what? It's all filthy rags. It's all filthy rags. And you come and this blood that's been splattered here, 
you're covered in and you're clean. This is how you get into heaven. This is the scale. This is the system. You talk about systematic theology. This is the system. The scale system. It's a lie. It didn't work. And you know what? There was this guy by the name of Paul. I mean, he's going down the road. He's killing people who believe this. Because he believes so much in the scale system. And he was doing it. He, matter of fact, he would brag, I'm one of the, the best at it. You want to talk about good. I'm good. And God stops him right in his tracks and says, are you out of your mind? You think you're good? I'm the only one who can make you good. And the Christ killer becomes a Christ lover and a Christ teller and a Christ preacher and a Christ reconciler. The rest of his days, he, he can't go far enough and fast enough telling people about what Jesus did for him. All of this leads to here. Guys, who needs to hear about this? <laughs> Is your golf game that important this week? Is your bridge game? Is your kid learning to throw a, 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 a football like Manning? Is, is that outfit that you've got to have that really makes you look good? The new iPhone? What is it that matters more than this? And us getting this message out to the world because they're going to go to hell believing this lie of the equal balancing and thinking that their goodness outweighs their badness and they will die. They're doomed. They're doomed unless this church gets on mission, gets on a mission to figure out what would that look like if a group of people really believe this and really were called to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What would it look like well, that's what I'm going to try to unpack for you in the next three or four weeks as we start to look at this mission that the elders are calling us to as a church, to lead ordinary people into an extraordinary relationship with Jesus Christ by loving God and loving their neighbor and living life to the full. Because that's what he came to do. And then he sent us to do it. I want to conclude with this one story. It's a small college in Missouri where a professor by the name of Tom Houghton teaches. Several years ago on the final for the semester grade, the class assembled with the exams turned face down on their desks. And Dr. Houghton gave them a brief review over the study guide that they had taken home to study so they could get ready for this final exam. But in one breath, he started to bring in material that, that wasn't on the, the review. And, and one by one, students started complaining. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of this is in the book you were asked to read at the beginning of the semester. You're college students, which means you're responsible for anything that, that is taught in this classroom and is in that book. So please, turn your test over and take your test. And when they did, the most amazing thing happened. Every question on every exam had already been answered in red and at the end of the exam were these words this is the end of your exam all your answers on your test are correct 
And you will receive an A on this exam for the reason that's simply this. The creator of the test took your test for you. All the work that you did in preparation for the test didn't help a bit. Enjoy your A. Now you can imagine that probably caused a little bit of a stir in the classroom. And when it died down, here's what Mr. Houghton said. You have just experienced grace. Now I know all the high school students are saying, what college was this? (laughs) Dr. Houghton closed by saying, some things you learn from lectures, some things you learn from research, others you can only learn from experience. And you've just experienced grace. And years from now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your name will be written in a book. And you will have nothing to do with the fact that it got written there. That's the ultimate grace. That's the ultimate experience. Please, brother, drop your scale system. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christ follower yet, I'm begging you, please drop your scale system. It's a lie. Not if you want to know this God and to experience his heaven. At least that's his word. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, the Bible is pretty pointed. It is appointed for man to die once and then will come a judgment. A courtroom. And you know what? You don't need legal prowess when you go in there. You need a loving presence. Wrapped all over you. To go in there for you. And Jesus will do that for you. But only if you want him to. And I'm praying you want to. Folks, people need the Lord. People need the Lord. There's so much more I could say, but i got to stop. They need the Lord. What are we going to do about that as a church? What are we going to let crowd out that call? In our kids' lives, in our kids' lives we do it. In our friends' lives, and even our enemies' lives. When you stand in that courtroom, you are not going to need legal prowess, but you will need loving presence. Please let it be Jesus. We're going to sing a song here. We're going to stand. And um, down front, I'm going to stand right here. And if you need Jesus Christ today and you don't want to leave here without him, we can make sure that happens. And if you're here this, this morning and you want to talk to a brother or sister about something going on in your life that's kept you from carrying this thing well, please go talk to him, okay? But let's praise him. And let's help you in any way we can to be his Christ follower today. Let's sing. Let's stay in church.